Conversations. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Med Conversations. It's Beck here with Scott, and we're going to be taking you through the wonderful world of perioperative medication management. How are you going, Scott? I'm good. I'm good. That's good to Looking hear. Looking forward to getting well, some of your wisdom from your... How long is it now of perioperative medicine that you've done? Quite a bit. Six months or... Six, six months. Yeah. It's um, Basically expert in it now yeah well let's see professor so um well in this hypothetical you're an intern (laughs) Uh, so you're an intern and your career so far has consisted of annual leave and two months on a community psych rotation monday morning of a new rotation rolls around and you're striding down the street in your shiny new rm williams with an almond milk magic in your hand ready to save some lives as a gen surge intern your first page comes through and it's something about fixing coffee that was spilt on a med chart Uh, But after a bit of a false start, you get your second page, maybe even more important than the first. Mr. Zoo is fasting for OT today. Query, give anoxaparin. What do you do? Well, we're going to come to that later. Um, In this episode, we're going to be talking about what to do with medications before either a planned or an emergency surgery. And as we'll come back to lots and lots of times, this is going to be just a general conversation. A lot of this is not particularly prescriptive. Um but it can be used as a guide in your practice, whether you're a GP or a hospital doctor. Hopefully this is all pretty pretty practical stuff. So we'll talk about anticoagulation, antiplatelets, diabetes medications, uh, antihypertensives, steroids, diuretics, um, and hopefully you find it enlightening. So first some general principles of perioperative medications. So if you're not sure, ask. And if you're an intern particularly at the start, you'll need to ask a lot of time for a lot of things. Yeah, before you which get is used totally to fine. Usually happens, yeah. And even most senior junior doctors still check with their reg or consultant for blood thinners. And even some regs will check with their consultant about what they want to do, as we'll talk about later, with some of the more esoteric kind of blood thinning or aspirin kind of options. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these are actually surgeon dependent or anaesthetist dependent. So even if you know everything about it, you really need to know about the person who's actually doing the procedure. It is reasonable to call endocrinology about steroids and diabetes medications if you're not sure as well, or the other specialties that are relevant to the particular medications. And your hospital probably has a lot of protocols on these. So, I mean, the uh, the School of Med Conversations covers some things, but basically you're going to be wanting to cu- go with what your local recommendations are. Also, this is one of the few up-to-date pages that seems to be kind of an all-inclusive package. So, definitely, if you're ever stuck in this situation, wanting to know what to do with someone's medications periop. Head to up to date. They've got a page that's just called Perioperative Medication Management, and it's pretty much um, all been plagiarised in this simple to listen to episode. Yeah. Um, one thing that we'll continue to harp on about is a lot of this depends on the patient and on the surgery, so it's all pretty individualised. And lastly, in a in a truly emergent emergency surgery, the show must go on. So you you don't. You don't uh, wait until all the medications are out of the patient's system if they need a life-saving surgery and it needs to happen today. It just needs to happen. Um, but we, we need to know how to mitigate the risks of those things. Yeah, which I think is why a lot of these are general guidelines and it's um, there's a lot less really fixed hard rules in this. The other thing that we just wanted to put in here in the intro bit is that when a patient is fasting, they can almost always have sips with medications. So they don't necessarily need to have all of their oral tablets withheld, which is a really a really easy trap to fall into, particularly with junior nurses as well. So important to keep that in mind. Yeah, fasting isn't nil by mouth. Exactly. Yeah. 
All right, so I think we're given enough disclaimers that no one's going to sue us. Uh, <laughs> what are we doing with that page? So we've got Mr. Zoo fasting for theatre. Should we give an oxyparin? Um, Scott, tell me about Mr. Zoo. So Mr. Zoo is a 56-year-old salmon farmer with acute cholecystitis who's fasting for a cholecystectomy later that day. You know a lot about salmon and you embark on a long discussion with Mr. Zoo about the Salmonidae family, but just as you were checking if he knew that salmon have an excellent sense of smell, he groans in pain and you remember that his attention is on his abdominal pain rather than the olfactory skills of the fish that he farms. You check his medical history instead. Past medical history, gourd, hypertension... And he's on pantoprazole, 20 milligrams daily, metoprolol, 50 milligrams BD, anoxaparin, 40 milligrams mane, while in hospital. So anoxaparin is a low molecular weight heparin. And for those of you who haven't yet hit the wards, it's on the med charts of almost every patient in hospital. It's for prophylaxis, for venous thromboembolism, and you'll be seeing a lot of it around the place. Clexane is what most people call it. Clexane, yeah. So that's the brand name. Um, the dosing depends on whether it's intended to be prophylactic, as we were just talking about, or therapeutic. Therapeutic dosing is when you're trying to use anoxaparin as an anticoagulant. The dose depends on the renal function. So 20 milligrams daily is the prophylactic dose in somebody who has renal failure. And for therapeutic dosing, it's either 1 milligram per kilogram twice a day or 1.5 milligrams a kilogram daily. So... Mr. Zoo is on 40 milligrams of anoxaparin and he's got normal renal function. So is that prophylactic or therapeutic, Scott? Prophylactic, 40 yeah. milligrams. Usually, yeah. unless he weighed, what, 30 kilograms? Extreme, extremes <laughs> of weight, you change the dose a little bit. Yep. Um, but, but I think that's a really important thing for interns to know, to be able to just skim a med chart and know, is that anoxaparin dose therapeutic or prophylactic? So he's on prophylactic anoxaparin, and as a rule of thumb, that needs to always be withheld on the day of surgery. Sometimes it also needs to be withheld the day before, um, but in general, you're safe always just withholding on the day of surgery, and again, reasonable to ask your team if they want to do any extended period of withholding. Therapeutic anoxaparin, though, different story. That should almost always be withheld for a full 24 hours. Patients who are having a spinal or an epidural anaesthetic, so a neuraxial anaesthesia, they are going to have a needle introduced into their spine. You really don't want that to bleed. So you need to be particularly careful to withhold it for 24 hours, although the anaesthetist might have their own specific preferences. So again, reasonable to, to ask. So if we're using this so often and it's a blood thinner and patients are in hospital and they're going to have surgery and procedures and they're going to bleed, can you reverse it? Um, well, you can par- theoretically partially reverse it using protamine. Protamine reverses unfractionated heparin and can partially reverse low molecular weight heparin, so clexane, although we don't really do it that much. We don't, no. So I've actually never seen it used for low molecular weight heparin, so clexane, um, because, so it, it, because it doesn't completely work and actually high doses cause anticoagulation. They inhibit factor five as they do the opposite thing to what you're intending. So generally it's reserved for, you know, um, the angiosuite and things like that and patients who are on actual unfractionated heparin. Um, But fun fact for our salmon farmer is that protamine was initially isolated from salmon fish sperm. Um, Sperm, I don't don't think that's a word, (laughs) from salmon fish sperm. Um, so if you want that for your next trivia night, there you go. You're welcome. 
when you're looking at his drug chart, though, you'll also notice that he's on metoprolol. Um, again, you're probably listening, people listening to this are going to be from a variety of backgrounds. So for people who are junior medical students, metoprolol is a beta blocker. Um, and it's indicated for lots of different reasons. And I think it's important to know why the patient is on the um, medication. So Scott, what are the common indications for beta blockade? Um, heart failure, AF uh, rate control, um, sometimes ischemic heart disease and hypertension is the most common. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so regardless of the indication though, generally beta blockade is something that should just continue through the period period. So Beck, can it be actively good in the periop patient? Yeah, totally. So not only is it not necessarily bad, but it can actually reduce the risk of ischemia because beta blockers decrease the myocardial oxygen demand uh, by mitigating that increased catecholamine release around the time of surgery. And obviously the reason that we're giving it as well is to prevent or control arrhythmias, which can come up in the you know, periop period as well. So it can be good for that. Cool. Are, are there any risks of stopping someone's metoprolol or beta blockers? Yeah, so you can get rebound tachycardia. So it's a really common thing that med regs get referred for. Why is this patient tachycardic? They're day four post-op and their heart rate's 110. Uh, and a lot of the time you look at the chart and realise that someone's withheld their metoprolol six days ago and that's what's happening there. So anyone can have that as a complication of stopping it suddenly. But otherwise, it depends on why it's started. So in somebody who's on it for management of AF, they can go into rapid AF. In someone who's on it for management of coronary artery disease, they can get ischemic chest pain or okay. worse. And what are the risks of continuing someone's beta blockers? So you can get hypotension or bradycardia, and that can be particularly bad in the perioperative period if they're also prone to either hypotension or bradycardia for other reasons like other medications that they're given or being fluid deplete and, uh, and and consequences of that or perhaps eating less, that sort of thing. Cool. So to summarise, Clexane or anoxaparin, high risk. Um, check with your reg or the, the home team if you're not sure. But prophylactic dose is usually withheld day of surgery and therapeutic dose is usually withheld 24 hours. And we'll talk about some exceptions to these rules a bit later. Um, and beta blockers should almost always be continued. Yep, good summary. All right, so we're on to the next patient. Uh, you're in pre-admission clinic and you meet Mrs Netta. Uh, she's an 80-year-old anatomy lecturer who's planned for an elective total hip joint replacement on metoprolol, atorvastatin, perindopril and aspirin. All of these things were started following a STEMI four years ago, which occurred after someone suggested that at 76 years of age she should probably consider retiring. She was managed with a stent to the LAD and an assurance from the university that her permanent position would be assured until her MMSE dropped below 20. What should you do with her medications? So we said she's on a beta blocker. So we said before to continue the beta blocker? Yep, so reduce ischemia, minimal harm in continuing, we should crack on. What about her statins? Usually continue. Yep, there's not really any periop issues with statins. Now, she was also on uh, perindopril, so that's an ACE inhibitor. What do you do with that? So this is a bit of a case-by-case case one. There's not really any strict guidelines around this. Usually, it's reasonable to continue depending on the surgery. What's your usual practice, Beck? Yeah, reasonable to continue, reasonable to withhold. This is one of those really annoying grey areas, but generally what I do is in a patient who's at high risk of developing an acute kidney injury, I'll withhold it. So that's mostly patients who are going to be getting some intra-op um, contrast. So 
you see this a lot in vascular surgery in individuals who are undergoing an angiogram at the same time as their other procedure. So I would never give an ACE inhibitor on the day that they're getting contrast. But if I do decide to withhold it for whatever reason, I always try and restart it again as soon as possible. So as long as their renal function's okay, their blood pressure's okay, it can come back on again. Often gets missed when patients are discharged. So make sure you check that um, pharmacy reconciliation. Totally. And that's really common with all of these. Anytime you're withholding a a medication, really important that you you make sure you've marked it for review in a couple of days' time to make sure it doesn't just get perpetually forgotten. What about her aspirin, Beck? Yeah, so antiplatelet agents are a bit more complicated. And again, no sort of definitive answer here, but let's talk through some of the information. So what, what is aspirin? So aspirin is an irreversible COX-1 inhibitor. Yeah, exactly. So um, the, the half-life is pretty short, right? So how, how long does aspirin actually last? So in the blood, only 20 minutes. But um, it's rapidly deacetylated and converted to... Salis- I was just talking off the top of his head. <laughs> definitely not reading. <laughs> definitely not reading. And converted to salicyclate in vivo, um, which does not affect COX-1 or COX-2 activity. But because platelets cannot generate new COX, um, the effects of aspirin last for the duration of the life of that platelet, which is on average about 10 days. Yeah. So I think that's the most important thing to remember. So the effects of aspirin last for 10 days, regardless of the half-life being short. It's, um, its legacy lives on. So this really is one of those things that needs to be discussed with the surgeon who's doing the operation. So in my role as a perioperative med reg, I can make recommendations, but it's always up to the surgeon to make the decision. And definitely if you're an intern on the team, uh, this is not a decision you should be making, but your job should be to identify that the patient is on aspirin and we need to make a plan. So most... Ap- most operations can actually be performed on aspirin, but as with anything else, it's a bit of a balancing um, act, ba- balancing the risk of them having more bleeding if they're on aspirin or having a perioperative infarction or stent thrombosis if they've got a stent inside you um, and, and try to work, work out what is a higher risk and what wins out on balance. So, Scott, obviously patients can be on aspirin for primary or secondary prophylaxis. Can you tell us what what that means and what you would do for each of them in turn? Yeah, so primary prophylaxis is when something hasn't happened yet, so you're trying to stop it, primarily stop it from happening the first time. And in those kind of cases, the risks are usually lower, so you'd usually withhold aspirin. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you're not getting much bang for buck anyway. Yeah, um, and secondary prophylaxis is a bit more debatable. Yeah, that's right. So mostly mostly we still withhold. Um, there was a big fancy trial published in Nedgem in 2014 called the POISE-2 trial, and that found that continuing on aspirin actually had no effect on the risk of death or myocardial infarction, but it did increase the risk of bleeding. And I think they were just looking at non-cardiac surgery, as we are in this episode. I'm not talking about any cardiac surgery here. But, but so basically, you give aspirin, you increase the risk of bleeding, uh, but you don't, there's no sort of good outcome from it, according to this trial. So their recommendation overall was that you probably should withhold it. There are definite exceptions, though, and there are sometimes when you should never withhold the aspirin. Scott, do you know what kind of uh, situation would, would prompt you to think it's a super bad idea to withhold it? 
Yeah, if they've just had a coronary stent. So usually six weeks of a bare metal stent or one year after a drug-eluting stent, you don't withhold. Mm, yeah, exactly. So if – and usually in those situations, the patient is on dual antiplatelets. So as a rule of thumb, anyone who's on dual antiplatelets, you want to keep going with the aspirin. Um, if the decision is made to withhold the aspirin preoperatively because we've said that it, its effects last about 10 days, there's not much point in withholding it one day pre-op or two days pre-op. You, you generally need to stop it a whole week preoperatively and then restart it again as soon as hemostasis is achieved, as in as soon as the patient's not bleeding anymore. What about the other antiplatelets like clopidogrel and ticacrolorbeck? Yeah, so these ones are a bit more nasty, so you tend to not operate on any of those other antiplatelets and they also last a long time so you should withhold them for a week pre-op or if the patient might be going to have neuraxial anesthesia which is a spinal or epidural anesthetic then 10 days so generally these antiplatelets are only continued in pretty minor low bleeding risk operations or vascular surgery because vascular surgeons will do anything on any kind of blood thinners because they're cowboys when it comes to blood vessels. They're very used to it, all that peripheral vascular disease. They've always got blood on their hands. Yep. <laughs> all right, so uh, Scott, do you want to summarise so far? Anoxaparin, prophylactic dose, when do you withhold? Day of surgery. Therapeutic dose? Uh, 24 hours. Beta blockers? Continue. Aspirin? Uh, continue unless recent stent. Yeah, again, kind of depends on what the surgeon thinks. Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, withhold unless recent stent. Oh, yeah. I really set you up for <laughs> failure. <laughs> um, other antiplatelets? Uh, usually withheld for seven to ten days before the operation. Yeah, okay. Good. Uh, do you want to tell us about Mr. Doak? We've been really creative with the names here. <laughs> Mr. Doak is an 88-year-old man from home. Sorry about my croaky voice, by the way. I promise I'm not putting it on. Apology Um, accepted. (laughs) Rat test negative. Uh, Mr. Doak is an 88-year-old man from home with his pet rat, PT2, currently on the surgical ward awaiting a bowel resection for recently diagnosed colorectal cancer. The patient, not Petey. Yeah, Petey's not on the ward. Um, uh, He has a history of atrial fibrillation for which he's on Apixaban. He used to be on warfarin, but PT1 got into his medicine box, and that's why now he has PT2. His surgery is penciled in for next week and the nurses ask you, the intern, to document a plan for his apixaban. What information do you need to know, Beck? So two main things. You need to know his renal function and you need to know what his surgeon wants. So the management of a DOAC really depends on the patient's creatinine clearance because that will tell you how long the effect of the medication is Have we said what DOAC stands for? No, I don't think we have. So direct oral anticoagulant. Are they also called NOACs? They, we are of the generation who calls them NOACs because when they came out for us, they were novel and I think they're no longer novel. Actually, I think there was like a legal case in the UK. Really? Where um, someone wrote NOAC, N-O-A-C, and someone interpreted that as meaning no anticoagulation oh. and didn't give the patient anticoagulation. So that's why they've changed the name from NOAC to DOAC. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, okay. Well, I just assumed that it was just that it wasn't really new anymore. I mean, that would also make sense. (laughs) So what I'm referring to, though, is your Apixaban, Dabigatran, Rivaroxaban. And the uh, way that I think about these is that they are tablet clexane, so the oral version of anoxaparin. 
it's important to think of it like that because it will help you remember that you don't need to give any bridging with Clexane because they kind of already are that. And we'll talk about what bridging is in a second. And if you haven't already learned this, the reason that they all go OXA is that they're XA10A inhibitors. Mm, so yep. enoxaparin, rivaroxaban, apixaban. Whereas dabigatrin is a 2A inhibitor. Maybe remember that as duo 2. What? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right. So the suggested discontinuation pre-op of a of one of these DOACs is I'm I don't think you're going to remember it if we talk necessarily just about the numbers, but um, the uh, you need to know the creatinine clearance to know how long it's going to hang around for, and you need to know how high the bleeding risk is of the surgery. So that both talks about how likely it is that there will be bleeding and also how much it matters. So something like a cataract surgery, there's usually no bleeding. Um, but if you have a surgery in a, in a confined space, like in any kind of neurosurgery, the bleeding risk is a bit higher. They're more likely to bleed, but mostly the consequences if they bleed are really bad. So in a patient who has a good renal function, a higher creatinine clearance, you're generally withholding just for 24 hours for a low bleeding risk patient and for um, for two to three days in a high bleeding risk surgery. And where, if the creatinine clearance is worse, so if it's sort of 30 to 50, then you're looking more at two days for low bleeding risk or three days for high bleeding risk with the bigger tram being a little bit of a longer period because the half-life is a little bit longer. So that's more like 96 hours rather than 72 hours, so four days I don't think you should try and memorise this though. Your hospital will probably have a protocol, so have a look at that. But the important thing for you, if you're an intern, a resident, um, even a med reg, is just to notice this on the drug chart and know if there's surgery coming up or even if it's possible that surgery might come up and mm. and stop the Think of it in advance. The it's always a pain in the bum. Yeah. A procedure gets cancelled because you forgot to cancel the DOAC. Exactly. And it happens a lot. Yeah, so um, if your hospital doesn't have a protocol, just do a Google search for guidelines on perioperative management of anticoagulant and antiplatelet agents, CEC, and that's the New South Wales guidelines. I don't remember what CEC stands for, but they're they're good guidelines. Um, When you have a patient who you think might end up needing surgery but you don't have a specific plan for it, it can be a good idea to just, when they come into hospital, stop the DOAC, stop the oral, and put them onto therapeutic clerxane or therapeutic anoxaparin. Um, that's because it doesn't need to be withheld for as long. But you don't necessarily need to do what's called bridging anoxaparin if you do know how long it's going to be. Um, so you can just pause it, which is different to warfarin, which in some situations does need bridging. So in some situations, you can't be off warfarin. So bridging means you're covering the patient when you stop their other anticoagulation with clexane or sometimes unfractionated heparin. So you're giving them a bridge between when they're st- stopping and then starting again their regular anticoagulation. Yeah, that's right. So Mrs. Wharf. Mrs. Wharf. So Mrs. Wharf is a 76-year-old bridge champion at a local RSL, um, talk of the town, who presented to pre-admission clinic ahead of a planned inguinal hernia repair. She's on warfarin for AF, also has type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and a previous stroke three years ago. What do you need to know, Beck, about to make a decision about how to manage her warfarin? 
You need to know her clotting risk to help determine if she does need bridging with an oxaparin. So the uh, the cutoff here is based on the chads Basque score in a patient who is on warfarin for, uh, for anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. And if she's had a stroke or a TIA within the last three months, doesn't matter what the chads Basque score is, it needs to be bridged. So that really high risk... Yeah, and so that's generally a CHADS VAS score of 7 to 9 or a CHADS 2 score, which is the outdated one we don't really use anymore, of of 5 or more. Yeah, and I think of the other thing to never forget is mechanical heart valves. I think of this as a totally separate category for trying to prevent strokes in someone. Because if they have a mechanical heart valve and their INR goes to normal, they have an extremely high risk of having a stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So if the indication for warfarin is AF, you need to bridge if the if the CHADS VAS score is, is seven or more or if they've had a stroke within the last three months or if they've got rheumatic valvular heart disease. If the indication is for a mechanical heart valve, if it's a mitral valve prosthesis, you've always got a bridge. Um, or if they've got an older style aortic valve prosthesis, but I think don't, don't worry too much about that. What's the other indication for for warfarin that people might be on? If they've had a recent um, DVT or, or venous fr- thromboembolism. Yeah, exactly. So if they've had a, a DVT or a PE within the last three months, then they need to have anticoagulation continued. It's too dangerous for it to be stopped, particularly given that surgery itself is going to be at risk of it happening again. Um, and actually, to be honest, this is often if you're if you're not able to withhold warfarin without bridging, often that's a sign that the surgery probably shouldn't happen if it can be postponed. Um, so bridging is actually not done all that frequently anymore. The other reason you might need to bridge uh, in terms of the sort of VTE indication is if they are known to have a severe thrombophilia. So the same kind of reason. It's too risky. They might have another another event perioperatively. Yeah. Anti-phospholipid syndrome or something. Yeah, exactly. And obviously get haematology involved in these more complex patients. Yeah, and I, I suppose that's not that obvious. So it's a, that's a really good point. Haematology should be involved, even if it's a even if it's a blood clot. Yeah. We're just going off the guidelines. They're the experts. Yeah. All right. So if you decide that you are going to need to withhold somebody's warfarin, how long do you need to give it to sort of wash out? It uh, depends on the patient, but usually about five days before. Yeah, that's right. So five days before, and you're only going to bridge with anoxaparin if they're high risk in those categories we just mentioned. Yeah. So little little old Doris, you know, if she has a chats vasque of one and just has AF, but if someone's got a mechanical heart valve, they'll probably need bridging. Yeah. And if they've got a mechanical heart valve, actually we generally don't use anoxaparin for bridging. We can put, it, put them on a heparin infusion. You just really don't want to stuff it up. So you refer, Mrs. Wharf, to your local HITH service for pre-op bridging on Oxaparin and wish her luck at tomorrow night's inter-RSL bridge quarterfinals against Shelbyville. You're absently minded, straighten your legs to stand up and your wheelchair hits the wall behind you. As you help Mrs. Wolf stack her chair on the bed so that there is room for the door to open, you wave goodbye and wonder why every pre-admission clinic at every health service takes place in a small windowless cupboard in the hospital's dungeon that patients can never find, nor doctors. A week later, you're surprised to see Mrs. Warford has ended up on your gen surge inpatient list. It was a CAT2 elective surgery, so you didn't expect to see her for at least eight years, and then she had to find you in the dungeon. It, it turns out that Mrs. Wharf and her bridge partner had gotten through to the semi-finals, but before she could dazzle the room with her skills, she suddenly developed a bowel obstruction. 
that hernia surgery was now urgent. Tapping at the computer, your co-intern turns to you. Her INR is 2.4. Does that matter? What do you wow. think, Beck? What do you do? So, so in this case, and in most cases, it, it does matter because the patient's going to have this emergency hernia surgery and their INR is too high for that to be safe without there being bleeding. So the options are you can reverse the warfarin quickly or you can reverse it slowly and delay the surgery a little bit more. So if the surgery is semi-urgent, it can be done in the next one or two days, you can give vitamin K. So warfarin's a vitamin K antagonist. So it's one of those very simple things in medicine that makes sense to undo the thing that undoes vitamin K, you give vitamin K. Of course, you do also need to withhold the warfarin because it's a bit awkward if you've tried to reverse it and then you just keep giving it anyway. So don't forget to do that. What about if it's not something that you can wait a couple of days before taking the patient to theatre? Call hematology. Mm. There are some things you can give, like um, prothrombin X, and, and as well as vitamin K, to more rapidly bring bring down the INR. Mm, prothrombin X. It's a combination of factors two, nine, ten, and a little bit of factor seven. And the reason it's good to get hematology involved, apart from the fact that they're the gate, gatekeepers of the prothrombin X, is that it's prothrombotic and these patients are on a blood thinner for a reason and now you're going to reverse it and put them in a situation where they're even more likely to get a clot. So tread lightly, be careful and get help. So Mrs Bridges' emergency surgery was postponed. <laughs> I think this is Mrs, Mrs Worf and I've just oh. changed her name. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs Bridge. She's a flexible woman. Yep. Um, so her emergency surgery was postponed, Mrs Bridge Worf. She was given vitamin K, had an NGT inserted to help with her bowel obstruction and thankfully remained stable for two days until two days later when her INR was 1.5 and the surgeon was happy to proceed. So to summarise this last little bit, uh, all blood thinners you need to check with the, with the registrar or usually the operating surgeon to make sure that they're happy with whatever the plan is. But as a general guide, DOAX, what do we need to know in order to, to know how long to withhold them pre-op? The, the renal function and which DOAC, and they yep. normally don't need bridging. You just look up the guideline to see when you stop them preoperatively. Yep. So usually between one and four days. Yep, and uh, you just need to know how, how high the bleeding risk is of the surgery and importantly what the surgeon thinks. And then for warfarin, anyone who's on warfarin, I don't think we even mentioned this, but you've got to check the patient's INR, so check how thin the blood is, how active the warfarin is. Uh, withhold for five days pre-op if you can, but if surgery is more urgent, then you need to reverse the warfarin with vitamin K plus minus prothrombin X. You only need to give bridging and oxaparin while the warfarin's withheld if they're at very high clotting risk. Or use a heparin infusion if they've got a mitral valve, mechanical mitral valve. All right, on to the next case. Um, Rock was a 53-year-old man who landed on your vascular surgery ward on mid-Tuesday afternoon. He was an Instagram influencer of Slovenian extraction and nobody was quite sure who he influenced or how. He had a nasty-looking diabetic foot ulcer and was planned for a toe amputation tomorrow. The very astute nurses on your ward had asked you to write up a diabetes fasting plan, wondering what should be done about his usual Noctae-Opticillin, TDS Novorapid, Empagliflozin and Metformin. So, diabetes medication management. This, Next wheelhouse. Yeah, this is really my jam as an endo-reg, but I think that this needs to be everyone's jam. Uh, it's 
really, really common that whatever your job is, at some point in time, you're going to need to manage a patient who's got diabetes and who needs to fast or is going to have an operation. So it's something that a lot of people don't know a lot about. I don't feel it's very well taught and protocols at different hospitals are different. But we are here to tell you one way of doing things. So what do you do about basal insulin? So your longer acting basal insulin, usually keep giving it, right? Yeah, that's right. So that's your things like opticulin, which is the new name for Lantus, um, and and Levomir, Tujeo. There's lots of different different ones, but the really the long acting ones generally just give. There are exceptions to all of these things, and one exception is that you'll often reduce the dose of the basal insulin in patients who have a tendency towards hypos. What about the prandial insulin? So that's the mealtime short-acting insulin. Well, they're fasting, right? They're not having meals, so you should probably mm. withhold that too, right? Yes. <laughs> um, thank you. So uh, it, you withhold that, but you do write it up as a supplemental sliding scale. So again, if you're in Australia, then you'll be using the National Insulin Prescribing Chart that you can just Google if your hospital doesn't use it and you can get a sliding scale off that. That uh, is a, a useful kind of guideline. But whatever your sliding scale you know, style is, you want to chart it for early while fasting. What's a sliding scale? So sliding scale is supplemental Nova Rapid that is given PRN, so just in case. So that's where you, where you write Nova Rapid to be given two units if the blood sugar is between 8 and 12, four units if it's 12 to 16, et cetera, et cetera. Supplementary insulin. Su- supplemental. So they don't necessarily get it. It's the just-in-case insulin if their glucose levels slide into that too high category. Okay. Cool. And uh, what, what about the opposite? What if the glucose goes too low in a patient who's fasting for surgery? Um, so you can you should chart a um, bag of IV glucose or dextrose that the patient can get in case of hypoglycemia. So if the blood sugar goes too low, yeah. So it's it's really important that you chart that as a that you've got that at the ready. So don't wait to be paged that a patient is already hypoglycemic. As soon as you fast a patient, you're also responsible of making sure that these things are done to plan for any eventuality. Yep. So IV glucose, I do five percent, hundred mils an hour if the blood glucose level is less than six or some people say if it's less than eight. Yeah. And then remember that's a PRN order, not a continuous order. So only if the blood sugar level goes down. Yes. Just to state the obvious. Yeah, it's not obvious. People do it all the time. So so yeah, that is just PRN. What about the non insulin diabetes medications? You generally withhold them? Yeah, yeah. So as a general rule of thumb, they all get withhold withheld on the day of surgery. The exception is SGLT2 inhibitors. Do you remember which ones they are? What the, what the name ends in? Like Pagliflozin? Yeah. Those ones. So the Flozins. The Flozins should be withheld three days before the surgery. So two days before and the day of surgery. Unless it's a really minor day procedure and it's not something that needs any bowel prep. So three days for the SGLT2 inhibitors. They also need the ketones to be checked preoperatively. Do you know why? Well, they can cause a euglycemic, so normal sugar, ketoacidosis. Yeah, exactly. So like DKA, but without the D. Um, they also have a bit of a diuretic effect, so they can cause hypoglycemia or AKI. So generally, I don't think that SGLT2 inhibitors should be given for inpatients at all until they're ready to be out the door and discharged home. So Beck, do you have like a pithy bit of wisdom for us at this point? 
Yes, I have a way that you can remember this. So uh, to emphasize again, the pen that writes the fasting order needs to write the diabetes plan. And the diabetes plan is not just about the medications. It's everything. So I've got it as A, B, C, D, E. A is for amend, amend the regular diabetes medications. So as we said, you're withholding the non-insulin diabetes meds on the day of surgery or the flozens for three days before surgery. You're withholding the mealtime or the prandial Novo Rapid if it's there. You can give the usual basal insulin. Um, and we haven't talked about pre-mixed insulins, but pre-mixed insulins like Novo Mix 30 you can give half the dose of that as protophane. So Novo, Novo Mix 30 is made up of a combination of Novo Rapid, so that's insulin aspart and it lasts for about four hours, and protamine crystallized insulin aspart, which lasts for about 14 hours. It behaves for all intents and purposes pretty well the same as isophane insulin or protophane. So just to simplify things in this episode we're going to be describing Novamix 30 as being a combo of Dover Rapid and Protophane. And given that those two are mixed in together and we've said that you don't give Nova Rapid with meals in a patient who's not having meals, you want to eliminate that part of it. So if they're on, for example, 20 units of Novamix 30, then you should give them 10 units of Protophane instead on that day as a stat dose. Okay, so you're just giving them the slow acting bit and you're getting rid of the fast acting bit. That's right, that's okay. right. So that's the A, amend the regular diabetes medications. The B is for B or the B and the C is for BGL checks. So tell the nurses that they should be doing BGL checks every two hours. They should also check the ketones at least once preoperatively. D is for dextrose. So dextrose five percent, hundred mils an hour if the glucose is less than whatever your threshold is as a PRN, so less than BGL less than eight or BGL less than six. And E is for extra, extra Nova Rapid, charted as a supplemental sliding scale, Q4 hourly. Great. So A, B, C, D, E, amends, blood glucose checks, dextrose, and extra sliding scale insulin. That's a, that's a good one. I haven't heard that before. So, Beck, uh, let's go through some examples because that might seem simple to some people, but I don't see many doctors actually doing this on the ward, so maybe it's actually not that common knowledge. So, example one. So this patient's usually on Novamix 30, 20 units in the morning with breakfast. And they're on a morning list. Yeah. Okay. So Novamix 30 is made up of two insulins mixed in together. It's made up of insulin aspart or Nova Rapid, which lasts for about four hours, and insulin isophane or protophane is the other name for that, which lasts for about 14 hours. So we call that a rapid-acting and an intermediate-acting insulin. You don't want to give the rapid-acting insulin with breakfast in a patient who's not having breakfast. It doesn't make any sense. So you want to just give that protophane or the intermediate-acting component of the Novamix 30. So what you do in practice is you write a little withhold on the medication um, chart for the Novamix 30, 20 units that they usually have. You're not giving that at all. And in place of that, you give 10 units of protophane, so half of the dose. So again, patient who's Novamix 30, 20 units with breakfast, you withhold that and in, in place you write a stat dose of protophane, 10 units money. Cool. Okay. So we've got another patient who's now th- um, on usually on Optisulin 20 units with breakfast, but this patient's on a PM list. So what should, should you do there, Beck? 
So first of all, opticillin, that's the brand name for insulin glycine, a long-acting insulin. And a lot of you who aren't fresh out of medical school or aren't still in medical school might not even be familiar with this, even though it's the most commonly prescribed insulin that there is. And that's because we grew up knowing it as Lantus. Yep. (laughs) We called it Lantus. Yeah. So so Lantus opticillin, exactly the same thing. It's just like a rebranding exercise. Someone's gone through with a big Sharpie and written over all the Lantus labels and now it's called opticillin. Yeah, it's kind of almost a tongue twister too because they're taking the N out of insulin. It's opticillin, just to trick people. Yeah. So what are we doing? We're actually just giving it. So 20 units mane of opticillin is their usual dose. It's a basal insulin. It shouldn't be influenced too much by whether they're eating or not. So you just give the full dose. 20 units mane, continue. What do you do if the nurse has withheld it without asking anybody or if one of your um, co-interns has maybe withheld it because the patient's fasting and they shouldn't have insulin when they're fasting, right? Um, Wrong. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) Never withhold the slow-acting insulin. Yeah, yeah. really important principle. Never withhold long-acting insulin. There are definitely situations where you might reduce the dose, but you should never withhold it unless you've got good reason. And generally, if you think you've got good reason, you should speak to endocrinology and make sure that they agree with your reasoning. Yeah, and this is done all the time. All the time. So what do you do if, uh, or sorry, you're asking me the questions here. Uh, yeah, you're definitely <laughs> the expert here. Uh, so you've got a, another patient on a PM list and they're usually on Novorapid 20 units with breakfast. All right, so we haven't actually gone through this situation yet, but if they're on an afternoon list, they often are actually eating breakfast, but they're often told to have a light early morning breakfast. So again, these are all kind of blunt tools and guidelines here but just halve the dose if they're having a, a light breakfast and they're usually having 20 units of Nova Rapid, just give them 10 units cool well um what about other non-insulin glucose lowering medications so as a general rule just don't give any of them on the day of surgery but withhold their flozins or the sglt2 inhibitors for three days pre-op so if we go through each of these in turn um pretty quickly so metformin um, the reason you want to withhold it is because of the risk of lactic acidosis, which is higher in patients whose kidney function is not uh, going well, which might happen because they're very sick or because they've got contrast scans or because they're having surgery. Then you've got sulfonylureas. Uh, these are insulin sensitizer medications, which really, if you think of them as oral insulin, so they make your blood sugar go low, so risk of hypos. And they tend to stick around a lot more in patients who have renal failure as well as so they accumulate. But if, you're, if we've said that you don't give things like Nova Rapid in a fasting patient for surgery, then it follows that we also shouldn't give something that acts kind of like Nova Rapid. So that's why you should withhold sulfonylureas. That makes sense. DPP-4 inhibitors, these are the gliptins. It actually doesn't really matter if you give or withhold, withhold on the day of surgery, but... Um, again, just to keep things nice and simple, we can say just withhold them. And then GLP-1 agonists, which are generally given as injectable medications, um, they are often weekly. You should withhold them if they're prescribed for the day of surgery, but it doesn't matter too much if you do give them uh, at other times. The only thing is they cause nausea and vomiting. So if you're uh, not wanting to cause a patient too much distress during their periop time when they're going to have nausea and vomiting anyway, then you should withhold them. Cool. So what about um, SGLT2 inhibitors? All the thing like, you know, impagliflozin. 
Yeah, dapagliflozin, and all of those flows and ending medications, they are associated with the risk, as we said earlier, of euglycemic ketoacidosis. So what I generally advise people is that these don't have much of a place on an inpatient medication chart. So if you're doing the admission note for a patient and they're usually on a flozen medication, right from admission is a good time to start withholding it. If the SGLT2 inhibitor or the flozen has not been withheld and the patient needs to go to surgery, it's often good to have a discussion with the anaesthetist about whether and the surgeon to determine whether the surgery should actually be delayed if it's not that urgent or if we need to push on to know what to do to minimise the risk. So you should check ketones, uh, check them preoperatively and even sort of around the time of the surgery. If their ketones are high, then you need to do a blood gas and make sure that they're not acidotic. So ketones greater than one would be a, a, normally 0.6 or, or less than 0.6. But uh, if the ketones are more than one, that should be a trigger for you to do a blood gas. If they are acidotic and ketotic and whatever their blood glucose level is, you need to get some specialist advice. So endocrinology or ICU, usually these patients are going to need some IV rehydration an insulin infusion, plus minus dextrose, and they need intensive monitoring, often in a in a higher um, dependency kind of setting or a specialist ward. And you would usually delay non-urgent surgery in a patient who's actively got ketoacidosis. Mm. So watch out for glycemic ketoacidosis and check those ketones. Yeah. So what do we do about Rock? He's due for his toe amputation tomorrow. He's on insulin, oh sorry, opticillin, TDS Nova Rapid, empagliflozin and metformin. So give the full dose of opticillin yep. or Lantus or glucosin glycine the night before. Withhold his regular Nova Rapid, TDS, because mm-hmm. he's not having meals. Withhold his empagliflozin. Yep. Withhold his metformin. Yeah, so giving nothing except for that basal insulin. And then, so that's the A, the amend in the ABCD. So then the um, B and the C, BGL checks, how often are you going to recommend the nurses check those? Every two hours. And um, the D is for dextrose, so charting PRN dextrose, 5%, 100 mils an hour if the glucose is less than 8. Um, e is for extra, extra insulin, so you're also going to chart a Nova Rapid supplemental sliding scale to be given every four hours. And that's it for ROC. So we're now up to our final case. Uh, Scott, can you tell us about Gabrielle? So Gabrielle is a 33-year-old chef presenting following an unfortunate incident involving his Wusthof knife, a Romanesco broccoli and his left third finger, which he has brought to ED in a snaplock bag with some frozen peas. The quick his quick-thinking sous-chef housemate stemmed the bleeding with some banana leaves he was using for a baked snapper dish. The blood loss is minimal and Gabrielle is um, hemodynamically stable at this point. He has a history of Addison's disease and usually takes oral hydrocortisone, 10 milligrams Mane, 5 milligrams midday, and fludrocortisone, 50 micrograms daily. So steroids, what do we do with them? Do we just with, withhold them, Beck? Yeah, so um, you're really, really pushing my buttons here. <laughs> um, you should n- always make sure that regular glucocorticoids are, are given. So they should never be withheld. A patient who always needs them, always needs them. This can cause patients to get really sick, so it's probably the second most annoying thing, apart from withholding people's insulin, that will really get back annoyed. (laughs) Remember, don't stop those regular steroids. 
And this is a good time to point out again that even if patients are fasting, they can still have sips with their medications. In this situation, it's a patient who's having surgery or who has a lot of physiological stress, it's also important to consider whether they need to have a stress dose. So the important thing for a junior doctor to do is to just think about these things. You don't necessarily need to know the specific plan, which is often individualised to the patient. But the general concept is you should never withhold regular steroids and you generally need to give a stress dose at times of stress. So the anaesthetist should usually give steroids on induction of surgery. So IV hydrocortisone is usually given and the dose is generally around 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams, but it does depend on how major the surgery is. And then they'll need some kind of a stress dose post-operatively for up to three days. Don't just continue perpetually giving a really high dose of steroids forever and ever. And it's really a good idea if you're, if you're an intern or a resident, if you get a registrar involved to help make a plan for this to make sure that it's not continued in perpetuity. And this is often done. People just forget about it. Why is it called stre- a stress dose, Beck? So because it's a time when the body is under stress. So I haven't really talked much about the, the reason for this. I should maybe just backtrack a little bit about that. So when, when you or I have stress, if we chopped off our fingers, the natural response of our body is to create more stress steroids. So uh, the HPA axis, which is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, will run over into overdrive and, and will create more cortisol because that's what makes sense if you're being attacked by a tiger that uh, you need to have your your blood pressure up so that you you perfuse your vital organs and you can run away from it so if you are on glucocorticoids regularly because you've got rheumatoid arthritis let's say you're on a high dose for a long time your hpa axis doesn't function as well as somebody who's not had that suppressed for a long time by having these exogenous steroids given to you So if you're on regular steroids, even if your adrenals aren't the primary source of the pathology, you need to always be on regular steroids. If your adrenal glands are the source of the problem, like in this patient who's got Addison's disease, then that's especially important. And you'd never stop them suddenly either, right? If you've been on them for a long time. That's right, yeah. They need to be weaned off. You need to give your your adrenals a, a little bit of a chance to recover. So uh, I think a lot of this is is a little bit specialised, but what's not specialised is that I think everyone needs to know the signs and symptoms of an adrenal crisis so you can recognise it in a patient and it's something that's very, very easily fixed. So it's one of those really, um, really nice things in medicine where you can actually come up with a solution. It's just one magical medication. So what are the signs of an adrenal crisis? So nausea, vomiting, dizziness. Obviously, no patient on a surgical ward would ever have these problems. <laughs> so that's all very vague, isn't it? Um, some of the other ones are also vague. It's more if you see it, everything in, in conjunction with each other. So postural hypotension or just frank hypotension. So often patients are having a met call for their hypotension. And then in terms of their electrolytes, they get hyponatremic and hyperkalemic. So uh, if, if there's a patient who you think might be at risk of this and you're seeing this cluster of symptoms, you can't do too much harm by giving them 100 milligrams of IV hydrocortisone. Mm, I guarantee you'll see this and someone will have forgotten to stress dose someone's steroids or just f- forgotten their steroids. I've definitely seen it quite a lot of times. Mm, yep, time and time again. It's a really classic met call situation. So what do you do about Gabrielle? Uh, call the anaesthetist and the endoreg. Yeah. 
That would be. So what do you the tell me to do answer. with the hydrocortisone, Beck? <laughs> so, what I do in this particular situation is I would give him 50 milligrams of IV hydrocortisone now with a plan to continue that Q6 hourly until he's post op tolerating diet. And um, at that point, I would still stress dose him, but I'd change him to double dose of his oral hydrocortisones for two days and then resume his usual dosing after that if there's no complications. And the endo team would continue to review him just to make sure everything looks okay. With thanks. Yeah. So just going more generally, really briefly, what are some other meds that we should never stop? Yeah, so some of the ones we've already mentioned are dual antiplatelets in someone with a recent stent, long-acting insulin and steroids. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is there any particular bugbear you've got? Well, as an infectious disease doctor, if any patient comes in on HIV medications, you should never usually stop them. Right, okay. Make sure you always let the ID team know if a patient with HIV comes into your hospital. They'll want to kind of keep track of who's on the ward. And a really super useful resource is Liverpool Drug Interactions. So if you just Google Liverpool Drug Interactions, HIV, or something like that, it'll come up. And Mm. it's super easy to use. And it gives you these really wonderful kind of um, red, yellow, green for which medications you can give with HIV medications. And then... Yes, yeah, so can you tell us why is that why is that a thing? Why do you need to worry about that with antiretrovirals? Yeah, quite a few of them have interactions with different medications, particularly some of the boosters like ritonavir and cabisostat. But you don't have to remember any of that. All you have to remember is the word Liverpool and drug interactions. <laughs> and and the wonderful Liverpool University has – this is all free to use, by the way. I'm not being paid for it. But, um, has also made an uh, uh, interaction checker for hep C medications. And also made one for COVID medications, which is really useful in a time when there's new COVID treatments coming out all the time. So if you've got a COVID medication and you want to check for interactions, just put it on this website, COVID, Liverpool, Google it, chuck it in. Super easy to do. So good to know. All right. So apart from the HIV drugs, what else do we need to make sure we never stop? So Parkinson's medications? Yeah, classic one, isn't it? Yeah. So they are usually tablets, but you can convert them to a patch there's a converter on on various kind of medical calculator sites um or you can ask your friendly neurology registrar to give you some advice there they'd be very happy to um, avoid you stopping someone's parkinson's meds anti-epileptics are another group of medication that shouldn't usually be stopped and another infectious disease uh, bugbear is opioids if someone's just another doctor bugbear i think (laughs) in general yeah but particularly if someone's on um, opioid replacement therapy, things like methadone, it's so common for a patient to wait 24 or 36 hours after when they were due for their methadone dose. So any patients on opioid replacement therapy, mm. um, make sure you refer, as soon as you find out that they're IVDU or opioid replacement therapy, refer them to the drug and alcohol team and make sure you get that methadone and get that opioid replacement so they don't have withdrawal. Yeah, really important. Um, another medication to never stop is inhalers and uh, please, please, please chart the puffers. Nobody ever does. I think it's really common that patients come in to ED and they've got, they, they bring all their tablets or they've got a Webster pack and all of the patches and the creams and the puffers don't get, don't get charted. But in a patient who uh, is going to surgery, it's so common that the med reg will be referred to optimise them for their query reason for shortness of breath and it's just that the, their regular inhalers haven't been given. This is so commonly at done. Least, what, like at least a quarter twice a of week. patients? <laughs> like, it's really sad. <laughs> um, 
Scott, uh, just a brief invitation for you to get on your soap do- soapbox about perioperative antibiotics. Yeah, so I'm not going to go fully into this, but I, I'm just going to say if you see a patient that's on something like kefazolin and they didn't have that surgery that day, it's a, a point to review and think they probably don't need those perioperative antibiotics. Most perioperative antibiotics you give either a single dose or 24 hours. There's a very short list of reasons for longer antibiotics or if it's like quite a deep invasive infection. And in those cases, it's often kind of guided by infectious disease anyway. So, mm. so this is prophylactic. Yeah, prophylactic antibiotics, make sure they stop. I've seen people have kefazolin for three, four, five days. I've often. seen it for three or four, five weeks. So absolutely <laughs> very important. All right, I think that brings us about to an end. So let's just summarise everything we've talked about. The main thing is that you need to treat all this information as a general guide and check with the actual surgeon who's doing the operation about what their preferences are. But if we start with blood thinners, enoxaparin depends if it's prophylactic or therapeutic dose. So, uh, so Scott, what are we doing in patients with a prophylactic enoxaparin prescription? Usually withheld the day of surgery. Yeah, therapeutic dose. Usually withheld 24 hours. Yeah, okay. And then other blood thinners, let's talk about antiplatelets. Aspirin, are we giving or withholding? Withholding, unless a really recent stent. Yeah, so within six weeks of a... A bare metal stent or one year of a drug eluding stent. What about other antiplatelets like clopidogrel, ticagrelor? H- higher risk, usually withheld for seven to ten days pre-op. Yep. And anticoagulations. Anticoagulations, wow. Anticoagulants. Direct oral anticoagulants, DOACs. Yeah. Don't so usually need bridging, you, but we look up, there'll be a little table you can look up and you look at the renal function and then you work out how long, usually between one and four days. Yep. Stop preoperatively. That's right. And warfarin? So usually withhold five days pre-op if there's time. And remember, if there's an urgent surgery, there's options for reversal like vitamin K and prothrombin X. And only bridge with clexane or unfractionated heparin if there's a very high clotting risk or things like a mechanical valve. Yeah, okay. What do we do about beta blockers? So beta blockers should usually be continued. And diabetes medications, non-insulin glucose-lowering meds? So usually withheld day of surgery, except for the eflusins, SGLT2s, which are usually three days pre-op, ideally. Yep. Insulin? Opticulin. So basal, basal insulin, opticulin, lantus. Never withholds. Don't listen to that nurse who asks you because the patient is fasting. But you might consider reducing the dose in some situations. Novorapid? Uh, usually withhold all the mealtime doses. But remember, to don't forget that um, that E of our ABCDE, chart the supplemental sliding scale insulin. Yeah, E for extra. What do you do about Novamix 30? Uh, usually give 50% of the dose as protophane. Yeah, exactly. Steroids? Never withhold. Change to IV hydrocortisone if they can't take tablets. Yeah, and they're usually going to need some stress dosing around the time of surgery, so get help with that. And watch out for that um, met call post-op. That's right. All right, that brings us beautifully to exactly 60 minutes if we can waffle on for another 54 seconds. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you like this episode or if you like us in general, please feel free to shower us with praise and adoration or uh, just make a review on iTunes or Spotify. And we're always interested in your thoughts in general. So if you've got any recommended episodes or any particular complaints or bugbears about us please let us know cool thanks for your time see ya bye